This is the Game Changers podcast where your hosts, Associate Professor of Education and Enterprise, Philip Cummins. And predominant educational thought leader, Adriana Prado. Well, the Game Changers podcast aims to not only put a spotlight on the innovative ideas shaping the landscape of the 21st century schooling, but to enter into a deep dialogue with those brave pioneers, the true game changers in education. Those individuals that don't want or wait for permission. Leaders in education who are actually courageous enough to make real change in their learning community as they foster the growth of each young person in their care to ultimately thrive in a new world environment. These are going to be their stories. Yong Zhao is a Foundation Distinguished Professor in the School of Education at the University of Kansas. He's also just about to become a Professor in Educational Leadership at the Melbourne Graduate School of Education. He's one of the most profound and important thinkers in the world about the way in which an education for the future might take shape and might be implemented. He sees an education Um, for students as something which is much more than the individual components. He's seriously interested in in the whole character of the graduates and how they thrive in the world. It's a real pleasure and an honour to be talking with one of the most important game changers in education today, Yong Xiao. Let's go. Well, it's great to be with you again, Phil, and I'm really excited uh, today because it's a real privilege to be able to speak with a, a game changer like uh, Yong Zhao. Yong, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to launch straight into the very first question, and thank you for very, being with us. The first question is, can you tell us a little bit about your own story and, and what has got you to where you are today? Well, thank you. Uh, that's, uh, uh, it's going to be a long story. You know, I have uh, lived over half a century, so that's going to be very long, but I'll make it very short. Uh, uh, well, I was born and uh, I really grew up in a tiny little village in uh, China's Sichuan province. You know, I used to joke about it. My village was uh, so poor that did not qualify as a poor village because uh, did not have enough money to, to convince or bribe the government officials to give that designation. So you can see how, how bad it was. But anyway, so I grew up there and uh, um, kind of had a rainy unusually and uh, great education in disguise you know you know thinking backward you know that you know from now it's uh really in hindsight i was uh, very close to nature uh had a lot of playtime with uh, different uh, i know water buffaloes you know chickens different animals different kids wow and went to a village school that really did not have a textbook or curriculum or, or nothing you know and there was no testing at that time during the cultural revolution and uh, then, but, you know, somehow through that process, I discovered that uh, I was really not interested nor good at anything the village valued, driving a water buffalo, cultivating, you know, a rice. And the only thing I was good at was really reading. And, uh, but there was really no hope for reading. But somehow I managed, and luckily, societies changed and uh, the Cultural Revolution in China ended and they allowed uh, students to pass the exam to go into high school, then college, and I went to college, studied English because I was simply bad at math. You can probably say a pattern, <laughs> like running away from my weaknesses. Not good at water buffalo, go to school. Not good at math, studying English. Then I became an English professor, a teacher at a college in Chongqing, China, and where I was really interested in how to teach English better, how to learn English better. You know, long story short, you know, through that process, I was uh, doing research and reading a lot of different uh, things about pedagogy, language, 
uh, came to the US in 1990s to uh, study for my uh, master's degree and PhD in educational psychology. They happened to run into uh, something called uh, the internet, you know, and the web. Uh, I was at the University of Illinois when the first web browser was uh, created there, and uh, it's called, I think, a long time ago, uh, called Mosaic, and got interested into technology, you know, globalization. So uh, and then after that, I became a professor at uh, Michigan State University, did research on educational technology. I was initially interested in using technology to help improve education, but then soon I realized that uh, technology's biggest challenge is actually it's redefining education. So after that, I've been to different institutions, but I had a good opportunity to work with the many K-12 school educators and students. And uh, a lot of my work really is, uh, is uh, about writing, research, but also uh, institution, uh, real changes in schools. Thank you very much for sharing that. And it's, what's really interesting is uh, it, it appears to me that um, part of your upbringing, you're a little bit countercultural then to what was happening at the time of, of your youth compared to where you are today. Yeah, in, in a sense, it definitely is. It's, it's, uh, you know, it's uh, well, you know, for me, if you look at uh, my, where I grew up, you know, uh, I still go back there. My father still lives there in a village. Sure. The, the absolute poverty, you know, sometimes I joke about it, it's like, really like, uh, Going back from the U.S. Uh, to my village is like a, a travel of 5,000 years of time travel in, in many ways. It's a huge cultural difference. So um, my next question to you is this. In your 2009 book, Catching Up, uh, lead, uh, Leading the Way in American Education in the Age of Globalization, you talked about this notion of global competencies. So in today's world... Uh, with everything that's going on, what does kind of global competency or global perspectives look like or include if it was to be in a school setting? Well, that's a, a fabulous question because today I've been just pondering about the, you know, think about the, the coronavirus, think about all those situations, you know, the rise of uh, xenophobia, of nationalism, you know, all these trade wars, all these situations, uh, it's absolutely important. In my action writing, and today I still think so, I think the most important thing for everybody to learn is not uh, really about what we call about other people. It's not about human interdependency and interconnectedness. It's to understand that no matter who you are, where you are, what you do, where you are, your local culture, your local community is affected, has been affected by other forces from around the world and you yourself and your actions and the actions of your community affects others that is we are really interconnected interdependent i don't think our schools our education system does a good job in doing so we, we teach ourselves to, about a global competitiveness we teach our students honestly many times to be selfish to you know to score high on the atar to we can push down other people i think to fight for opportunities rather than to create opportunities so in that sense i, I tie that uh, Global competency, with I call global entrepreneurship, is that to use your unique talents to create value for others. So, to uh, in this interdependency, interconnecting this, we contribute to each other's well-being and uh, try to aspire for common prosperity and peaceful living together. So, so in 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 the context of what you've been talking about there, with both being a bit of an iconoclast with global competency and global entrepreneurship, what do you believe should be the purpose of school in today's world? Well, I think, you know, the, uh, the, the purpose of school, you know, is, uh, 
in my definition, is written to help every and each individual student discover, uncover their strength and passion, help them expand that uh, passion and their unique talents, and then help them find a place, uh, a way to turn their uniqueness into something that's valuable to others and to better the world. That's the education, I think. Uh, uh, but that is not normally shared because by uh, schools belong to different institutions, to different nations. I think a lot of times we have as a overly uh, economical being or workforce, but I really think it's about the humanity, the growth of individual human beings, and then we treat ourselves as a member of a global society that's connected. So I really love this notion of kind of fraternal humanism that you're sharing with us today. And so much of what I've read um, in your writings over the years have really kind of, that's been a prevailing construct in, in, in your work. Can, can we extend that a little bit further then? How can we then help educators and schools today in, in this move towards kind of the character attributes being as significant in a school setting as the acquisition of literacy and numeracy? Well, thank you, Adrian. I mean, Adrian, Adrian that, that's actually a very powerful question. In my mind is that, you know, I, because I, I, I travel to so many different schools, you know, one of the things I know that today's educators work under many, many constraints, you know, the government national uh, yeah. curriculum standards, your NAPLAN testing, uh, whatever your ATAR scores, you gotta drive all those things. But I, I, I encourage and, and I invite all educators to think themselves as a fellow human being. And so what they need to do is to look at the child, to see the human being in the child. Do not see them as a learner, as a student, as someone who is going to bear the standards or the curriculum. I would encourage everyone to say, okay, in front of me is a human, is a person. How can I help this person become, you know, uh, fully realize their potential and become valuable and uh, valued, you know, in this uh, in a school? So if you can see the child before you see the curriculum, would be much better. Uh, much is morally a more companion and morally correct. But also, you know, even in practice in our schools, if you, you go to school like end of a year, uh, when teachers get together to plan for what to teach next, uh, they always go over the curriculum, they go over the materials. But how about we go interview, we meet every child, you know, before the, the year starts and we know during the summer or winter uh, break, we can think about the child in front of us as a, a live human being who will be living with me for one year. So in, uh, like it, 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 when I hear you say things like that, I get really inspired. Then I think of myself when I was a classroom teacher and it's Wednesday afternoon, it's 2.30, it's hot and windy outside. How, how do I bridge that gap between the noble and the lofty and the... And, and the ideal and the practicality that there's a lot to do, there's not a lot of time to do it, there's a lot to pressure on you and the kids might not necessarily be cooperating today. Well, I think Phil, that's, uh, you know, uh, I've been in this place, I'm still in the classroom, I've been teaching over uh, 35 some years, we're really approaching 35 years, you can't believe that, you know, we have uh, 
I've taught in different countries. We all have uh, faced the same kind of challenges. I think uh, uh, actually, if you switch from this uh, uh, mentality of you have some a body of knowledge, a set of skills, a set of curriculum tasks you have to impose on children, but treat them as truly a, a fellow human being who is waiting uh, uh, to be to grow, who is working with you. You may not have that problem. You may actually have a, a, a more asp uh, inspirational life in many ways. I think the the pressure we we place on ourselves, you know, because of the uh, expectations of a school of different systems or students not cooperating. I think it's because the, the, we created that we manufactured those things. Uh, we put ourselves in that prison, but of course we, we don't put ourselves. We've been indoctrinated to put put ourselves in, the, in in that process. And you know, you talk about children not cooperating. I mean, honestly, you know, when do we cooperate? When do we collaborate? Is when we feel like uh, you genuinely care about me, you genuinely work with me, and we'll work together. And there are temporary times, you know, even like. Uh, kids will rebel against their parents, you know, <laughs> you know that, that sometimes it's, uh, you know, even though that the parents will care about them, I think it's to create space to understand children are human beings. I, I joke about this, you know, uh, uh, education standards like to treat children as a dead bird. So you can expect them to reach certain uh, level of the trajectory by, you know, throwing them into the air. But if you try to throw a live bird, you can never project. Our children have human beings <laughs> work with their emotions. You cannot predict them. You cannot impose the expectations. You know, in, in, again, I think uh, ultimately, you know, you see so many movies, stories, fictions, which actually can really happen. The most touching stories in life is about human bonding, relationships. You know, I think it's, uh, and also we have to give ourselves some credit as teachers. You know, it is a tough job and uh, it is emotionally exhausting. So we have to find ways to enjoy our life as well. So there are, I think I can, there are a lot of manufactured pressure on ourselves, uh, which we, when you sit through it, it's not necessary enough. It's, uh, it's terrific sitting here listening to you talk about uh, a kind of new mindset for the way in which we need to approach schooling and, and a total new ecosystem. I think it's also really important to, to highlight that there are many schools and many school learning communities that are actually doing this, not only here in Australia, but of course across the globe. And I think we, we should be very mindful that uh, there are people who, who subscribe to this new vision and have been trying to craft it even, even in a kind of system that is so riddled with lots of compliance and structures. So my, my question now is gonna move a little bit, but it's in a similar vein. I want to now tackle the kind of wicked problem of measuring what actually matters. And many nations have focused on improving uh, standardized test results or test scores. And from my experience, all they really do is produce young people who are really better at just taking tests. And they may have kind of lost sight of the larger goal of creating, you know, well-educated, ethical citizens uh, who are diverse and, and, and can function in, in a kind of uncertain and fluid workforce. So... Can you share with our listeners a little bit about the illusion of PISA rankings? And that's something that you've been talking about lately. Absolutely. I mean, let me just you know, uh, uh, really uh, reinforce what you said. There are really many wonderful educators and schools are doing this. I, I, you know, just in Australia, I just got back from uh, 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 South Australia, Adelaide. I've been yeah. working up uh, the fortune, uh, good fortune work with a number of public schools and independent schools, you know, 
that have been uh, trying to move in towards this kind of model of education and uh, schools like in, in Perth. You know, I, I mean, I've had a good fortune to work with many schools in Australia and they, a lot of them, uh, if they, they haven't done that already, already aspiring to do this. So yes, your observation is absolutely accurate. So the pizza, yes, uh, the, the pizza is, is absolutely what I call uh, um, uh, a magician that manufactured good illusion of high quality education which unfortunately has uh, made many people believe that is, uh, well, I mean, the, the number of problems, for example, uh, number one, PISA claims to measure the abilities or skills or knowledge or capacities or whatever the, that whole set of things you might call 15 year olds should know and be able to do uh, in order to thrive and survive in a 21st century. So, but if you, you, you look hard at that, and there's, first of all, there's many, no evidence whatever the measure is linked to a country's prosperity and individual success. There's no empirical evidence at all. If you look at it 20 years ago, whoever scored high on PISA have not really, are not necessarily kind of a superstars in economy or, or those kind of things, really, or innovation or changes. So second of all, you know, so there's no empirical evidence. So second of all is that uh, what, what they're trying to measure basically is I kind of say I call a manufacturer concept, which is highly correlated with traditional testing like TIMS, Trends International Mathematics Study, which is actually highly correlated with IQ, you know, the IQ test. So they're not really measuring anything new or interesting. The third of all, even if they were trying to do that, can you imagine because of the diversity of different societies, economies, cultures, you can't possibly have the same set of skills that will make you be successful in in my little remote village in China versus in Sydney, Australia, or in Ghana. You know, you can't have the possible in the same way, you know, this. And third of all is that different cultures, different societies, places, different emphasis on things. And not everybody is going to place the same emphasis on whatever PISA measures, you know. So, and so, so education, no matter what you think about, has bears a lot more out different outcomes than the PISA test scores. And, and of course, finally, if you think about, uh, even from the economic perspective, like I've analyzed the data, and if you think creativity, entrepreneur thinking, confidence are important. And if you look at the PISA data, uh, countries score high on the PISA have absolutely lower entrepreneurship confidence, lower uh, student enjoyment, lower life satisfaction. So all of those things will say, okay, Whatever PISA claims to measure as something important is not that important. So, Yong, so the challenge for all of us is how do we shift then the narrative? How do we shift the narrative with the government bodies who, who basically create the system um, and, and insist on a particular set of structures uh, and compliance that we must follow? How do we help a media uh, who report on this on a regular basis you know, they, they, use, they use kind of very deficit type language that we're failing our students, that we're, you know, we're in decline in Australia, for instance, on PISA rankings, and you know, the whole thing is broken and, and it's falling apart. How do we shift the narrative from measuring what matters in an education system that actually values personal learning away from the standardized testing? Well, I think you've uh, pointed out the answer already. First of all, I think you are doing this by having conversations to put us out there. Luckily, you know, today's media allowed the, what, who used to be the audience become the broadcaster. That's it, you, you can, we can become part of the media, you know, but not the traditional media. But secondly, I think is that we need to create alternatives. 
We cannot just go say you, you are not good. We have to say, okay, like you said, well, let's measure what matters. So, so for example, in my mind, I think a good education should give students a lot more autonomy where they can exercise the autonomy, they can become responsible for their own life, for their own learning, to personalize what they want to do, who, who they want to become. So I was, I, I'm actually working with a group of students from Australia, South Australia, which I don't know how this is gonna go because I just inspired a bunch of students to say, what if we published a ranking of schools based on the level of students' autonomy? You know, uh, you know, and the students actually trying to work on this, and we just started called Student Autonomy Project. It's, uh, you know, what if we did that? What if you guys, you know, you game changers, you come up with a different kind of measure, but good school measure rankings. You know, you can use the same strategy. We just have to have different ways to to measure to show that success. And of course, you know, it's uh, it never hurts to criticize them. You know, I'm working on uh, uh, some uh, writing to really examine and criticize the. Piece of creativity assessment to show how horrible it is and how the best way to cre to kill creativity is to take the test. It, and and there's a there's a direct line of thinking for for, for game changers all over the world, in and around that. Um, Yongjia, you've you are a prolific writer and you have uh, a wonderful and curious and creative mind that goes across all sorts of different things. Um, as a thought leader, I'm wondering what's been working well for you and what hasn't. What are the ideas that you're advocating that people are picking up on and what are the things you really wish they would but they're not quite there with yet? Great question. Th thank you. I think, well, you know, the... Uh, initially, really, I think uh, the, the ideas that people have picked up on is my, um, my writings and my thinking about why standardized testing is a horrible thing to have for schools, for educational systems, and how it actually hurts an education system, why it's a bad idea. And that actually been picked up quite well. I think uh, my ideas about entrepreneurship has been picked up a little bit, but because entrepreneurship is a huge field, and most people think about entrepreneurship education as business training. But my, my thing about entrepreneurial education, entrepreneur learning, is actually a paradigm shift. So I wrote the book in 2012, you know, called World Class Learners, and educating entrepreneur and creative students. Most people took that as a entrepreneurship business kind of class. And uh, I think that's a really misconception. My mind in thinking is that all learning, all education should be entrepreneurial. And being entrepreneur means you give students the autonomy so they will manage their own learning enterprise. They will develop their talents and they will apply their talents to create value for others. And that's what I call entrepreneurial education. And 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 that and that 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 stream in your thinking around voice and agency of students has become um, clear in this conversation already. Why do you think it's so hard for education systems to allow children to have autonomy? Why 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 is it so hard to give them voice and agency? Well, I, I again, it's a fabulous question because I I think it's a, it's more of a uh, you know there's our good intention to want to be certain that our children have a great future. You know, I, I'm not a conspiracy theorist you know, like our president in America, you know, uh, but I, I, I generally believe that people are trying to do good, even politicians, business people, parents, schools, teachers, school leaders. We all want to be certain that our children 
have a pathway towards success. As in that regard, then we try to become a benevolent dictator. You know, say, okay, we want you to do this and this, this and this is my experience. This is how we've done this. So we like to prescribe uh, any kind of children deviation from prescribed pathway becomes uh, worrisome. And once it was worrisome, so we want to correct it. If you think about right now, how we do over-diagnose, we over-diagnose uh, um, our students. You know, think about right now, we call it early uh, uh, detection, early intervention. You know, even with the reading, as early as two or three year olds, we're trying to find out if our children have uh, uh, ADHD, have uh, uh, autism, and then we should apply intervention to them. A lot of times, those interventions should not be applied. They actually can be hurtful. So that's, I think, the, the, the reason is when we want to be certain, but that, uh, you know, that, that attempt is futile. You know, basically, you know, you cannot be certain. And in the uncertain world, you cannot be possibly manage a, a certain pathway towards a future where our children are the creators of the future. We do not have a predetermined, preset future waiting for our children. And therefore, we cannot pretend that we can decipher what the future wants our children to become. Then you mold them into that. Plus, more importantly, education is a long time for children. You know, they should enjoy life. That's part of their life. So that's what I want you know, to humanize the whole process, to allow our children to be themselves and they can learn to manage themselves. So I think it's that uh, uh, futility in thinking we can manage, in thinking we can control, in thinking we can prescribe, in thinking we can be certain, that is the problem. It's, it's, it's such an interesting concept, isn't it? Because the first thing we teach young teachers is how to control a classroom. And then yes. that you know that takes exactly. you know and 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 you know that can take that can take a number of years to settle in and then you spend the next thirty forty forty five years learning that you don't have as much control as you thought you did. What does professional learning for teachers in letting go control look like? Do you think? Well, I think you know um, teachers probably. I would start from. Uh, self-examining, uh, ex examine ourselves, our own life, to, to, uh, to understand our, ourselves as a full human being, not as a government or, or ever hired uh, knowledge dispenser or bureaucrat in the system. I think understand ourselves. I would do, do a lot more psychology readings, more than right now about uh, personality and about emotions, about the full human being, I think. And, and the second thing, I would really try to get our teachers to become perhaps taken in a professional training in, in counseling, in, uh, uh, in uh, um, life coaching, and coaching other people. Those skills are not about directing explicit teaching, but it's really about supporting, about understanding our students as human beings. I think those would help, rather than trying to like classroom discipline or this tiny, you know, trivia skills to teach this, you know, math or reading or phonetics you know i think it's uh, we trivialize our teaching as an engineering issue but it's actually a much broader philosophical educational uh, uh, endeavor you know young though uh, again I'll, I'll i'll argue that um there's actually a set of of educators that have probably been doing exactly what you're advocating for quite some time i mean i'm a little biased i'm a visual arts and design teacher so my, my classroom for the last 25 years has built on the framework of design thinking. 
developing the empathy from the very beginning and allowing them, the young person, to define the project and work through a set of protocols to eventually come up with their own solution. Now, that, take, that requires me as the person at the front of the room to co-produce that learning environment and have been doing for quite some time and allowing their ideas just to be as re- relevant and as valued as my own. Sure, I can provide them with great knowledge and skills of, of how to use mediums and fundamentals of really good art and design practice, but ultimately, I'm allowing them to play in this kind of creative space where those aha moments are the moments where it resonates with them so deeply that then they understand that they are competent and then they're confident to take really good learning risks. So I, I believe there's a, there's a set of you know teachers out there that have possibly been doing this for a long time. However... We've been the ones who have been the electives. We've been the ones who have been the, the kind of the, the va- adding value, but we've never been the core. Well, at least the outliers. We've been the outliers. Because it, it, it can happen in the core as well. And so, so what I'm hearing you say today, uh, advocate really strongly, is that the aim for, for, for students is to not only gain confidence and develop, a, develop this kind of entrepreneurial mindset, but it, it is to allow them to continue in their most formative years to value curiosity, to value play, to value creative and critical thinking. Uh, and, and I'm really inspired by that. Well, I think yeah, you, you're absolutely, I really want, want to highlight that. I think, you know, a lot of the ideas we're talking about today, uh, you know, has long history, has been practiced, you know, has been in various institutions by various instructors. But I think as, as Phil was noting that, Unfortunately, it's on the peripheral. Sometimes we call them alternative education. They're not into the core. I think the idea is how do we change to the core, the idea. It's also another point I think is really to, how do you, like you were saying, get students to be the drivers of their own learning, the owners of their own learning. It's about you know, self-determination, the right to self-determine. I think that is, uh, is quite challenging. So much of what you've been sharing with us today does resonate around that self-determination theory concept of autonomy, competence, relatedness, and relevance. And so my question to you is this, how can we ready young people, the students in our care, for careers that do not exist yet? Well, you know, uh, you know actually the, the, the important thing is this, okay. So if we imagine uh, I, I, well, I, I did not learn to drive a, a, a car until I came to America. I used to drive water buffalo and bad. <laughs> once I came to the America, I learned to drive. Then I, I noticed one thing. When I start to drive, I don't get car sick. So if you are the driver, you don't get car sick. And yeah, passenger always can get car sick. So you want to be the drivers of the change. So imagine uh, it shifting our mindset is that our children if they're the creators of the future, if they're creators of the jobs, if they're creators of the, the position, they probably don't need to look for a, a, a job. They don't look for that stuff. So they are the creators, especially in developed countries. Our kids are so uh, well endowed with so much uh, resource. They should be able to, to think about themselves as creating value. And, and honestly, you probably know this better than I do. If you can create value for others, for the world, I don't think you have to worry about, you know, a job, a profession, and you create this, you know, the, the best job uh, that you will never lose is one that you create. Thank you very much for sharing that. I, I love that. I love that um, phrase you've used there, drivers of their own future in many ways. And uh, by, by handing over 
because so much of our current systems in education or many elements of it is about control and compliance and risk aversion. But, but you know, what you're, you're advocating, of course, is that we, we're not afraid to hand over control, that we take really good kind of learning risks to allow them the freedom to understand how to grow from failure and, and trial and error. So my, my question to you is this, why is this work important to you? Well, I think it's uh, the, a, a bunch of things, really. You know, it's like, uh, first of all, I, I want to retire in a more peaceful and prosperous world myself. So, uh, I, I, you know, my retirement is going to be created by all these young children today. I bet you want the same thing. Okay, so that's, that's uh, uh, but more seriously is that uh, I see, um, educators, schools, policymakers work so hard to better education, but actually doing harm to education, to our children. I think that's really uh, sad. You know, we, we actually working hard, investing a lot, which actually causes damages, you know, and that, that, that's one thing. I want to see that possibly change. Another thing is I do see a lot of children who are born maybe in poverty, like me, um, born into underprivileged places, or born with different kind of talents, but are not good, uh, based on standardized testing, are really cast away, uh, um, are penalized. Uh, and they have talents, but the talents is wasted, is never recognized. I also see how standardized testing is used to perpetuate social inequity. You know, that, you know, a lot of times test, testing or grading or grades are in a way to select, you know, this is a, like olden times, we try to identify like IQ test. It is to define you. It is to put you in place. It is uh, used for eugenics. It's used to discriminate against people. But no child should be defined as, as early like as year 10 or 10-year-olds, 5-year-olds by a test, by sorting into some kind of uh, category and that uh, uh, prescribed their uh, uh, destiny of life. So that's what I, I think there's so much in unfairness and injustice. It's uh, in many ways I have myself, I kind of suffer from, but more importantly, I just, I worry a lot about how uh, on earth today with such advanced technologies, with such you know, uh, inequity, how human beings will actually survive and prosper together in the future. No one can be independently and individually wealthy with all his or her neighbors as very poor. And, and, and yet, from what you're saying there, there's, there, there, there are traditions that are now thousands of years old where societies use education and testing as a means for sorting, as a means for discrimination, as a means for um, uh, giving to some and not giving to others. How important is it that we achieve a shared understanding about the social context of education and this social purpose of, of, of humanising what we're doing? You know, uh, so I, I, uh, I'm a big believer of John Dewey. Do we always think about uh, education it reflects the society, but also schools should reflect, you know, the society we want to create. I believe, you know, all societies are 
created by human beings and there are certain things that can be changed and we should create our uh, people to be better social uh, constructors. We want our students to become better citizens. Right now, you know, we're unhappy about a lot of politics happening in America and various parts of the world is that uh, I would say, you know, in, in a democracy, that's typically reflect our voters. It means we haven't done a good job educating our children to be good citizens, to be good uh, responsible uh, participants of democracy. And uh, instead, as I think uh, yeah, we were talking earlier, the overemphasis on literacy and numeracy while forgetting our children are members of large human societies of different cultures, different places. I think we, we neglect to think about the character, the personality, think about the human contributions. And so in my um, conceptualization of a new education is that everybody you know, understand interconnectedness, understand where we are from, how we're affected. It's not abandon who you are, but it's to solidify who you are, but understand the, the, the who you are really depends, relies on how you are connected with others. And, and we, 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 we would argue that there are four questions that in, in there, who, who are we, where do we fit in, how can we best serve others, and then whose are we? So that, you know, that, that, that connects self-awareness, it connects relationship, it connects service, and it, and, and it connects vocation. We'd, we'd, we'd also argue that schools which encourage selflessness rather than self-centeredness and act on the assumption that if I look after you, you will look after me. That's the way we do the interconnectedness thing at the end of the day. Yet it's so hard. Uh, on, the, on the one hand, we are attempting to uh, bring out the best in human behavior, and we're also seeing um, the challenges posed by human frailty at the same time. I'm really interested in your thoughts about how we make change possible in schools. What is it that allows a school to go from one paradigm to another successfully? Well, I think, you know, uh, there's an important part. Why do we have this kind of selfish sometimes behavior is that, you know, uh, today's education, uh, at least in developed countries, we are trying to follow this uh, idea called manufactured scarcity. We think it's scarce. You know, the reason we do ATAR, we do all these things, you know, we want to make sure there are only so many units are worth going, for example, right? You know, we do the Russell Group. So you think about build these pyramids and we manufacture scarcity. Then we kind of make teachers, students, parents to fear that if they don't follow the government guidelines uh, or the curriculum passing this exam, that test, they will not be able to achieve that scarce social opportunity for upward mobility. I think we need to get rid of that. We need to understand today, if you want to get an education, a good education, and you can. And we also want to uh, uh, help our children, parents understand uh, life success does not rely on you beating down others to fight for a few spots. You can create more opportunities. And right now, I was just, again, with a lot of students, think about Australia. I'm using America the same way. You think about America with the, the varsity blue scandal is that we use all the resources to get our children into top elite schools. A lot of students feel like, you know, they want, oh, I want to be a doctor, so I want to go to med school. And my ATAR has to be this high. And imagine that, that, that idea. 
you know, if you want to ask them, do you know what it means to be a doctor? Why do you want to be a doctor? Why do they go compete for that? You know, if, if they truly understand, maybe if they want to service, uh, serve human beings, maybe that's not the best way to do it. Maybe that's not necessarily. I think uh, Seth Golden, uh, the marketing guru would say this, you know, if you see someone coming to your shop to buy, you know, buy nails, you want to ask, why do you want to buy nails? They say, well, I want to put some... Uh, a plot and a, a, a plank on the plot, uh, on the nails. I said, oh, okay, why do you want to do that? I want to tidy up my things. So he's not really trying to look for nails. He's looking for a way to clean up his house. Yeah, education is the same way. So in schools, I think we need to expand that the destination we prescribe for our children is not necessarily true. If we think our children's future relies on their own creation, their own entrepreneurial thinking, and that their value is realized through helping others uh, around the globe. And we may be able to abandon the so-called prescribed pathways. Because right now we have this prescribed pathway. When you have a prescribed curriculum, as you said, it becomes deficit thinking. That is, you know, I have this curriculum, you have to meet my expectation. If not, I'll help you do that because I'm assuming you're missing something. So I think that's a, if we can abandon that pathway, that, that uh, um, pathway thinking or preparedness thinking, uh, we might actually be able to shift. Again, this idea is actually not new. I would, I would go trace back again to John Dewey, think about the Chicago lab school he created, is that you, know, you live in a society, you know, life is education, education is life. You're not, you know, education is not in preparation for life. Seth, Seth Godin also um, has a quote because he's someone that I greatly uh, admire and follow. He has a quote that uh, he uses, successful people are successful for one simple reason. They think about failure differently. And <laughs> That's probably so, yes. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. Yeah, and so it's just sitting here listening today, uh, it, is, it has been inspiring to, to be present with someone who is thinking about schooling differently and learning differently and that that it's okay to enter into this space of personalized learning. And along that journey, there's gonna be missteps and that's okay. And, and I feel that if we can convince the educators and the young people in our care, and particularly their parents, that a misstep is not the end of the world, that it's gonna be okay. Uh, we could go a long way in, in thinking about schooling in a very different context. Uh, we're gonna wrap this up now, Yong. And so, did you wanna jump in just there? No, no, I'm, I'm good. No, thank you. Okay. Um, I think it's really important for us to realize that perhaps it is hard to realize this educational vision that you share and, and articulate so beautifully with us in which students are likely to thrive and flourish moving forward. Um, we would be well served to work towards bringing around your attractive vision for education and educational systems in order to allow young people to flourish in this kind of world of great uncertainty. And... Um, Phil and I would love to thank you very much for your time today and, and continually sharing your wisdom. We, we continue to be inspired by your writings and your advocacy and your passion for not only young people, but humanity in a broad context. So thank you very much for the work that you're doing. Uh, and we look forward to uh, learning from you going forward. Thank you. And I hope you will get a lot more game changers and the students are great candidates for changing the game. Okay, thank you. Thanks very much, Yong. Talk to you soon. Game Changers is a podcast for those who want to change the game of school, produced by Samuel Wiseman for Hordle Productions. Tell your friends and don't forget to subscribe.